welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Alfry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Michael T. Morley, Assistant Professor of Law at the Florida State University College of Law. We will discuss his draft article, Federal Elections and State Constitutions. So welcome back to the show, Michael. You're one of my uh, very few repeat guests at this point. Well, I appreciate you having me back. It, 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 it's a great, it's a great podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. Cool, cool. Yeah, no, the pleasure is all mine as always. Like, this is a great, fun paper. Really interesting, kind of historical stuff, which I always love, and it's super timely as well because this is a big moment in election law, especially in relation to political gerrymandering claims. And so for for listeners who aren't that familiar with election law, I know they're crazy, but there may be some out there, right? <laughs> like, wh- why is that? What, what, what changed to make sort of this big shift in the election law around gerrymandering? Sure. So for for the for the past few decades, there had been a lot of debate and a lot of uncertainty over whether the U.S. Constitution had enforceable restrictions on what's called political gerrymandering. And by political gerrymandering, we mean politicians or the state legislature drawing district lines, whether state legislative districts or congressional districts, but drawing district lines in order to disproportionately benefit members of a particular political party. And usually you know, it's the party in control that will try to maximize the number of seats in, either in that state legislature or in that state's congressional delegation they have. Other times, you know, if, if, you have, um, if you have shared control of the legislature, sometimes you'll even see arrangements where the two major parties will come together and have a bipartisan gerrymander where they make, them, where they make themselves each have some safe and so the constitutional question was, can courts step in under the U.S. Constitution and prohibit political gerrymandering? And uh, this past term, in a case called Rucho versus Common Cause, the Supreme Court held that political gerrymandering claims are not justiciable under the U.S. Constitution, meaning that federal courts can't entertain political gerrymandering challenges. The the Supreme Court held that the Constitution doesn't create any judicially manageable standards, that there's no rules, there's no guidelines, there's no law in the Constitution to which a federal court can turn to try to figure out what types of redistricting is okay, what types of redistricting goes too far, takes politics too much into account, constitutes an impermissible political gerrymander. And so the court just said, the Supreme Court said, federal courts need to stay out of this. This is not justiciable. And we, the Constitution simply does not create uh, a justiciable cause of action against, against the, this type of issue. I got to say, I mean, it it hit me in a really interesting way because I remember when V V Jubilee was decided when I was in law school, and that was like a big deal, right? And it just seems like for so many years, so many people in the election law context were like hanging this kind of hope on that Kennedy concurrence and the idea that somehow they would come up with a standard. And like, that's like a lot of years of like kind of scholarship and work in that area that just kind of went up in a poof of smoke all of a sudden, it seems like. 
You're absolutely right. Scholarship, lower court opinions. I mean, one of the one of the things that made at least some commentators think the court was likely to come up with some sort of standard for political gerrymandering was that a three judge district courts across the country had begun to articulate their own tests. They they came up with their own standards. They would look at they would look at things like legislative purpose. They would look at things like the effects of the gerrymander. They would they would look at things like for how many election cycles into the future you would expect to see a particular political party uh, benefiting or having a disproportionate number of seats. Political scientists, right, even interdisciplinary work, political scientists would, would come in and propose different measures like the efficiency gap. That was one of the big, the big concepts at issue in the Rucho case. But they would come in with these different measures for trying to propose to the court, here is a standard you can use to determine, to distinguish valid redistricting attempts from invalid, unconstitutional political gerrymandering efforts. And the Supreme Court just said, none of this is rooted in the Constitution. We can't come up with an objective, constitutionally-based standard to sort this out. And so we're just, the, the judiciary is just staying out of this altogether. Mm, mm. Well, of course, academics and people involved in kind of the politics and policy of election law still really care about gerrymandering. And, you know, now that that the the sort of the the obvious approach is no longer available they still want to try to do something about gerrymandering at the state level sort of and as you note in the paper i mean the, it seems like the big move at this point or the suggestion is to use state constitutional law to limit or prohibit gerrymandering like how would that work and what's the normal relationship between uh, the state constitution and the federal constitution in relation to sort of how states do things? So there's a long history of looking to state constitutions to provide greater levels of protection for certain rights than the federal constitution provides, right? So there are certain types of exceptions to the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement, for example, where certain searches might be permissible as a matter of federal constitutional law, but state Supreme Courts have interpreted their state constitution analogs differently as providing greater levels of protection. And so if that same search were conducted by state or local officers within, with, within that jurisdiction, it would be held to violate the state constitution. And so you, state constitutions are separate documents. They have their own language. They have their own drafting history. Many courts will read them in lockstep with the federal constitution. Certainly just about every court in the nation will at least consider how the Supreme Court has interpreted the U.S. Constitution. Many jurisdictions will construe their constitutions the same way as the federal constitution. But state courts do have the prerogative to construe their constitutions differently. And so, at least in the abstract, the simple fact that the Supreme Court has held that a certain issue is non-justiciable under the U.S. Constitution, or even if it had held on the merits that the federal due process clause or the federal equal protection clause does not create a cause of action for political gerrymandering, state courts would be free to construe their, their state constitutions differently. And in fact, some states have actually gone a step further 
and affirmatively amended their state constitutions, the Florida among them. Florida uh, amended its state constitution to specifically prohibit political gerrymandering and to greatly curtail the, uh, the ability of the state legislature to uh, take into account political considerations when drawing legislative and, and congressional district lines. So as a general matter, looking to state constitutions to provide additional layers of protection or additional level, uh, levels of protection when the federal constitution doesn't do so, that is a generally accepted common ordinary step. The argument of this paper is within, and even for state legislative elections, with regard to state legislative districts, that is, that is a totally acceptable step. The argument in this paper is as a matter of federal constitutional law under the U.S. Constitution itself, a state constitution may not impose substantive restrictions on the scope of a state legislature's power to regulate federal elections. And so any attempt to use state constitutions to regulate a state legislature's authority to draw congressional district lines would be unenforceable. A state constitution is simply legally incapable of limiting a state legislature's authority with regard to congressional elections. Come on, how can that be? Like, what? Why? Why would that be, Michael? So the Supreme Court has recognized that states don't have any inherent authority to regulate federal elections. The only authority that states have to regulate congressional elections, presidential elections comes from the U.S. Constitution. And if you look at the U.S. Constitution, unlike, unlike many other provisions, right, many other provisions will talk about states and it will say the state can do things, the state cannot do things. But if you look at the elections clause in Article One and the presidential electors clause in Article Two, they don't talk about the states as a whole, the states as entities. They, I like to say they pierce the veil of statehood. And they, <laughs> That's good. I like that. That's good. They specifically say the legislature of the state shall regulate the time, place, and manner of congressional elections. The legislature of the state shall regulate the manner in which presidential electors are selected. So Article 1 and Article 2 of the Constitution, Article 1 deals with congressional elections, Article 2 deals with presidential elections. These are direct grants of power straight from the U.S. Constitution directly to the state legislature itself. And so a state constitution is legally incompetent to try to impose substantive limits on the scope of that authority that the state legislature isn't getting from the state constitution, but that it's getting directly from the U.S. Constitution. Mm. And you refer to this as the independent state legislature doctrine, right? Yes. I mean, does that does that have a long pedigree? Sort of like where does that concept come from? So the the phrase independent state legislature doctrine is the notion that when a state legislature is regulating federal elections, congressional elections, presidential elections, it is acting independently of the state constitution. It is not deriving its authority from the state constitution but rather it is exercising a substantive grant of power that comes from a higher source of law, that comes from the, the U.S. Constitution. 
And the main focus of, of, of my paper, the main thesis of, of my paper, is that the independent state legislature doctrine was the prevailing, was the predominant interpretation of the Constitution throughout the 1800s. That whether you're looking at state Supreme Courts, whether you're looking at the chambers of Congress themselves, both in resolving election contests, in regulating federal elections, even if you look at an early state constitutional convention, that whenever this issue came up, the overwhelming predominant approach was state legislatures are not bound by state constitutions. I mean, typically, mm. if you have a conflict between a state statute and a state constitutional provision, all the, the state Supreme Court is going to go with the state constitution, right? The state Supreme Court will strike down that state law under the state constitution. And yet what we saw in the few cases in which this issue arose was state Supreme Court after state Supreme Court in the context of federal elections would enforce the state statute rather than the contrary state constitutional provision. Mm. So in the paper you marshal a ton of fascinating evidence about this, some of it kind of, to my mind, sounding in sort of like originalist observations, some of it just sounding in, I think, really just straightforward precedent-oriented observations. I mean, I wonder if you could touch on sort of some key points in each one of those. Like, I was really interested in some of the commentary you had on the drafting history of the Constitution, for instance, and like what that sort of said about how Congress, or rather how the the drafters, the framers of the Constitution were thinking about the, the the authority that they were delegating to regulate federal elections and sort of how the language of the various drafts sort of reflected the debates over how that authority ought to be delegated. Sure. One of the things that makes looking at the drafting history a bit of a challenge is that there wasn't a point in time where the framers ever specifically said, okay, are state constitutions going to limit state legislatures? And right, so the, 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 to be clear, right, this wasn't an issue where there's a particular exchange at the Constitutional Convention we can point to and say, look, that's what James Madison said, right? We win, right? <laughs> there's, so it's really more looking at the the overall concerns that the framers expressed, looking at the overall structure that the framers adopted, pervasively throughout the Constitution of, uh, throughout the Constitution as it was originally drafted, at just about every step of the process, control of elections was placed in the hands of political entities, political branches. The Elections Clause itself says state legislatures regulate the time, place, and manner of congressional elections. Congress may step in and make or alter those rules as it sees fit. Each chamber of Congress decides the elections, qualifications, and returns of its own members. The state legislatures decide how to appoint presidential electors. Cong the chambers of Congress meet together and count electoral votes and decide who, which presidential candidate has won the election. Pervasively, the structure of the original constitution reflects a pervasive 
institutional choice decision to entrust control of the electoral process to the political branches, not to the judiciary. And the independent state legislature doctrine, recognizing the power of state legislatures to regulate federal elections without state courts being able to step in and attempting to limit them under state constitutions, is consistent with that overall approach. I do want to step in and make one quick point. The fact that state legislatures aren't limited by state constitutions with regard to federal elections doesn't mean that they have no limitations whatsoever. They're still subject. They're getting this power from the U.S. Constitution, and so they are still subject to the constraints of the U.S. Constitution. So the Supreme Court has held the Elections Clause itself contains implicit restrictions on the power of state legislatures to regulate congressional elections. They're not allowed to dictate electoral outcomes. They're not allowed to favor or disfavor particular classes of candidates. They're not allowed to change or to set voter qualifications or candidate qualifications. And most importantly, because this is a power coming from the U.S. Constitution, state legislatures are still subject to U.S. constitutional restrictions. So they are still subject to the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause, the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, all of the Voting Rights Amendments, the Anti-Discrimination Amendments of the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment, the 26th Amendment. So it's not that the argument here is state legislatures have completely unconstrained plenary authority, but rather the argument is when they are regulating congressional elections, federal elections, they are subject to the limitations of the U.S. Constitution, not their own state constitutions. Mm. So in the paper you provide... Uh, many different examples of courts, especially in the in the nineteenth century, interpreting the elections clauses consistent with the view that 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 you express in in the paper, probably too many for us to discuss <laughs> in in the podcast today but I, when I, I I wonder if you could pick out a couple that you think are especially representative, maybe both of courts and also of kind of other like legal-ish bodies interpreting how this would work. And in particular, as I understand it, I mean, you've unearthed some examples that were kind of that have not previously been identified or discussed. And I think those might be like of special interest given that, you know, people are, you know, obviously not going to have heard of them before, and I think they kind of add additional weight to the argument that you're making. For me, one of the clearest and most powerful examples is a a case from 1887 from the Rhode Island Supreme Court called In Re Plurality Elections. And that involved a congressional election. At the time, the state constitution of Rhode Island said you had to, a candidate had to receive a majority of votes, an absolute majority of votes. So 50% plus one of the votes cast in the election in order to win. Whereas Rhode Island state law said for congressional elections, a candidate only needed a plurality to win, which means they could win as long as they had more votes than anyone else. They didn't actually have to have an absolute majority. And so a congressional election occurred in which a candidate 
received a plurality of votes, but did not receive a majority, that, that their plurality didn't amount to a majority. And so the question was, were they validly elected? Under our conventional approach to state constitutional law, we would say no. The state constitution requires a majority. The state law requiring allowing you to get elected with only a plurality violates the state constitution. It's unconstitutional. The Rhode Island Supreme Court came to the opposite conclusion. The Rhode Island Supreme Court said this state statute was adopted by the state legislature. The legislature gets its authority to regulate congressional elections directly from the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution. And so given this clash between the state constitution and the state statute, we have to go with the state statute. And so they said the candidate could win with only a with only a plurality. They said the state constitution could not limit the scope of power that the legislature got from the U.S. Constitution. We saw a similar approach in the, in the 1870s in Mississippi, where there was a dispute over the timing of, con of congressional elections. And there was, there was confusion about language in the state constitution, about when congressional elections had to be held, Competing elections were held, one on a date consistent with an interpretation of the state constitution, one on a date driven by state law, and the Mississippi Supreme Court said only state law counts, that the, that the state constitution cannot limit the state legislature's authority to determine the timing of congressional elections, again, because the state legislature isn't drawing its authority over congressional elections from the state constitution. It's drawing it directly from the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution. We, we saw the same approach in Congress itself. The, the chambers of Congress have authority to be the ultimate judges of the outcomes of congressional elections. And so in resolving certain contested elections, they would again be faced with conflicts between a state constitutional provision and a state statute. And most of the time they wound up going with the state statute expressly invoking the independent state legislature doctrine. The, the best known example of this is an election contest called Baldwin v. Trowbridge from 1866, where the, the state constitution required that ballots be cast at the precinct in which you were registered. So basically state constitutions required people to vote in person. During the Civil War, many states passed laws allowing military voters, people who were off fighting in the Union Army, and they were away from home, they couldn't show up at their precincts to cast their ballots. These state legislatures authorized absentee voting. And so there were ballots cast, absentee ballots cast by these military voters permitted by state law, contrary to the state constitution's restrictions. And so the issue was, were these votes valid? And the House of Representatives, in, in, in resolving an election dispute, said, yes, we will count these absentee votes because they were cast in accordance with state law. This, it's up to the state legislature to decide the manner in which congressional elections will be held. And these state constitutional provisions purporting to limit the legislature's authority, purporting to force people to vote in person and prohibit the legislature from allowing absentee voting, they're simply unenforceable, that, that they cannot limit the state legislature's power to regulate, to regulate 
congressional elections. A completely different, a completely different issue of, of, of a type that, due to other constitutional amendments, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even have today. Under the original Constitution, state legislatures appointed U.S. senators. Right, we didn't used to have uh, Senate elections, and so in in West Virginia, during the 1880s, the governor had called a special session of the state legislature to deal with certain specified issues. And the state constitution said, during a special session, the legislature cannot go beyond that list of issues. Whatever the issues were in the call, that is, those are the only things that is permitted to deal with. During a special session, the state legislature went ahead and named Charles Faulkner as the, the West Virginia's U.S. Senator, as one of West Virginia's senators. But picking a senator was not one of the issues on the call. It wasn't mentioned at the time the governor called the special session. So under the state constitution, that appointment was invalid. And the Senate nevertheless seated him. It said that a state constitution's restrictions did not apply to the legislature's, quote, performance of duties imposed upon it by the supreme authority of the constitution. Because the, because the state legislature was appointing U.S. senators pursuant to its power under the elections clause of the Constitution, the legislature itself had the authority to determine the manner in which it would appoint the, the senator. The fact that it chose to do so during a special session was up to the legislature itself, and the state constitutional constraint on that power was simply unenforceable, in, inapplicable. So again, th throughout the 1800s, throughout the 19th century, state Supreme Court rulings, election contests, again, we, we've only had time to, to touch on a few representative examples here. The prevailing predominant interpretation was this independent state legislature doctrine that con state constitutions couldn't put substantive limits on the scope of a legislature's power to regulate federal elections. I mean, okay, so what's so what's the deal then, right? I mean, it seems like the language of the Constitution is consistent with the independent state legislature doctrine. And as you've just explained at length, the history of sort of the application of the provisions seems consistent as well. What's the deal? What's the objection? Like what happened? During the during the early twentieth century we started to see state Supreme Courts turn away from the doctrines and we, many times even without acknowledging its historical pedigree. Like many of the, many of the rulings in which the 20th century courts reject the doctrine aren't even aware of the extent to which it had been applied Throughout the throughout the 1800s, and so in fact, you know, one of the one of the main purposes of this project was, as you said, to marshal all of these examples, so that at an absolute minimum, if modern courts, if modern commentators are going to reject the doctrine, they at least know that this isn't just some theoretically possible or plausible interpretation of the text, but rather it is one that was applied with great regularity, with great consistency for, for nearly a, a century. If you look at the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has gone back and forth on this. In, in 1892, in a case called 
McPherson versus Blacker, the Supreme Court considered a state, the, the scope of a state legislature's power uh, to regulate the way in which presidential electors would be selected. And the Supreme Court there wholeheartedly embraced the independent state legislature doctrine. It said that legislatures have plenary authority to, to regulate presidential elections, and the power conferred upon them by the Constitution of the United States, quote, cannot be taken from them or modified by their state constitutions. So you have the Supreme Court expressly embracing the doctrine. A few years later, in a case called Lesser versus Garnet, the Supreme Court had to consider whether the 19th Amendment was valid. The 19th Amendment extended the franchise to women. And the argument was some states' ratifications of the 19th Amendment were invalid because their state, the constitutions of those states, prohibited the state legislature from extending voting rights to women. And so the argument was because those state legislatures, when they ratify the 19th Amendment, they were violating this limit on their authority, their ratifications are invalid. And so the 19th Amendment didn't have enough ratifications to enter into it. That is, that is impressively circular, isn't it? <laughs> and so, the, again, the Supreme Court rejected that. The Supreme Court said <laughs> legislatures get their authority to ratify U.S. constitutional amendments from the U.S. Constitution itself. And so the fact that a state constitution tries to limit their power, tries to tell them you're not allowed to ratify amendments dealing with women's voting rights, you're not allowed to extend the right to vote to women, those state constitutional constraints are simply unenforceable. And so the, 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 the U.S. Supreme Court said, given this conflict between ratifications by state legislatures and state constitutional provisions purporting to prohibit them from making those ratifications, we're giving effect to those ratifications. We're not, we're not, going, to, we're not going to enforce the contrary state constitutional provisions. Mm, mm. Well, so, so Michael, I mean, I got to say that like when I, I mean, I'm not an electionalist scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but when I read your paper, I mean, I found it pretty convincing, both on the text and on the history. And yet I, I, I understand that your position is sort of a minority position here, which I find a little perplexing. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and like what the sort of objections to the position that you're taking are. Sure. Well, in, in part, they rest on later Supreme Court decisions. So once you get to the 20th century, even the 21st century, there, there, there was a, a ruling on this a few years ago in 2015 in the case called Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission, the Supreme Court has issued rulings that, while not expressly and directly repudiating the doctrine, go very, very right up to the, to the, to the brink of doing so. And so the Supreme Court has said the word legislature as used in these particular provisions of the U.S. Constitution doesn't mean institutional legislature. It means any lawmaking power that a state chooses to recognize. And so it said legislature can include public referendum. Legislature can include initiative. 
that if, if the people of a state using the initiative process decide to amend their constitution to strip their institutional legislature of power to regulate congressional districts and vest that power instead in an independent redistricting commission, that is fine. That was the, that was the most recent case, the, the, the 2015 Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission case, which, which I'll add is a, was, a, was a five to four ruling with Justice Kennedy siding with the, with the majority. And one of the things that's, to me, remarkable about those, about those rulings is right, there, are, there are words in the Constitution, right? there are words or phrases like you know, equal protection, due process, where, where there's at least an argument that these words are trying to codify you know, abstract concepts where you know, people can debate like what is due process, what is equal protection, even if you're an originalist, what do the framers mean by due process and equal protection? But if there's one word in the Constitution, we know what it means. It is legislature. That at the time the Constitution was enacted, 11 out of 13 state constitutions used the word legislature, and all of them used it explicitly as referring to their elected representative body that met periodically promulgated laws. If you look throughout the rest of the Constitution, right, the, the word legislature is used repeatedly throughout the Constitution. It is used to refer to a body composed of members who can take oaths. It is a body that periodically convenes. It is a body that can be in recess. So throughout every other usage of the term legislature in the U.S. Constitution, it is by context alone, it is referring to the institutional legislature that we typically think of when we talk about legislatures. And so the notion that we're going to carve out these two particular these two particular provisions in the original constitution and say that the word legislature has a unique and different meaning just in those provisions, but nowhere else in the U.S. Constitution, nowhere else in the state constitutions, and really contrary to most usages of the word legislature in general, I find unpersuasive. <laughs> that's very, you know, that that's very forgiving of you there, Michael. It seems like, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, unpersuasive strikes me as maybe not as strong as I would go on that front. It seems kind of absurd. Well, I mean, to, to be fair to the right. To, to be fair to the majority on in the Arizona Independent Redistricting case, their main approach wasn't really textualist, wasn't even really originalist. I mean, they cited to a dictionary where one of the definitions of legislature was the legislative power. But the, the main focus of their approach was a purpose of this approach, where they said the purpose of the elections clause, the purpose of the reference to legislature wasn't to allow legislatures to act independent of constitutional constraints, the purpose, state constitutional constraints, the purpose wasn't to exclude things like the initiative, like the referenda, because the majority claimed the framers weren't even in thinking in terms of initiatives and referenda, they didn't have those at the time. And so they argue from a purposivist approach no, there, no good would come out of applying the independent state legislature doctrine. That no purposes of the framers would be would be furthered, and so they adopt a broader approach 
that they, that they think is, is more consistent with the underlying purposes. Even if you accepted purposivism as a valid means of approaching this clause, and, and I certainly think, again, you, textualism and structuralism should play a much greater role in construing this provision than purposivism, but even if you were to adopt a purposivist approach, throughout the Constitutional Convention, the framers repeatedly distinguished between the people and what the people would do directly versus the legislature. And they saw institutions like legislatures as intermediary, intermediary bodies that would be able to temper the popular will, that would be able to help channel popular passions into better public policy. I mean, they had their own concerns about legislatures. At various points of the Constitutional Convention, the framers expressed concerns about just about every possible entity within the government. But at a minimum, the framers consistently distinguished between the people and the legislature. And so the notion that you can, can, you can construe the term legislature in the Constitution as including direct action by the people, like an initiative and referenda, which is what the Supreme Court did. Again, I just think, even from a purpose of his perspective, I think, I think is erroneous. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it seems like the constitutional amendment process is like the most obvious example of that, right? Yes, and the, and the Supreme Court distinguished right the Article Five of the Constitution from the Elections Clause, right? Because Article Five, the amendment provision is another place where the Constitution specifically singles out the legislature of the state. And that was the right, Article 5 was the provision at issue in Lesser, where the Supreme Court was trying to determine whether the 19th Amendment had been validly ratified. And there, the Supreme Court had no problem saying Article 5 gives the power to, to ratify constitutional amendments to the legislature. And so therefore, attempts by state constitutions to limit that power, to say to the legislature, you're not allowed to ratify certain types of amendments, those are invalid. And I mm. I don't think that there's any, you know, th th this is called intratextualism, right? The notion that you should presumptively interpret terms in within the same document consistently. I think that construing the word legislature to mean one thing in Article 5 and something totally different in the in the elections clause and the presidential electors clause earlier in the Constitution, I I don't see any basis for that. Mm. Well, so, so Michael, I mean, I understand there's also been kind of the center of scholarly commentary kind of coming down on the other side of this argument. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and sort of where the sort of scholarly conversation has gone, why it's gone there, and sort of why you think that is, like what's motivating the kinds of arguments that people are making on this front? So much of the scholarly commentary, particularly post-Rucho, is looking to state constitutions as the next major source of limits on political gerrymandering. And with regard to political gerrymandering of state legislatures, I think that's totally legitimate, right? A state constitution may limit a state legislature's power to draw legislative district lines, or whether you call it the General Assembly or your state Senate, whatever. That is purely a matter of state constitutional law. And I think the turn to state constitutions as a way of 
regulating or limiting or prohibiting political gerrymandering when it comes to drawing a state legislative district is entirely appropriate and consistent with that history, with that tradition of looking to state constitutions to provide additional protections that the U.S. Constitution doesn't. When it comes to federal elections, I think that frankly, much of the scholarship, most of the scholarship is simply unaware of this history from the from the 1800s. That is unaware of the extent to which the independent state legislature doctrine was accepted by courts, was accepted by the chambers of Congress, that at most it is it is it is seen as a something that occasionally was mentioned and it's something that they see as having been rejected by the Supreme Court. And so part of part of the part of the purpose of this paper is to try to, as you said, marshal that historical evidence to say this isn't just a theoretically possible interpretation. This isn't just a one-off interpretation that politically motivated actors would periodically drag out when it was in their interest, which is sort of what the, what the majority in the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission suggested about Baldwin versus Trowbridge example, but rather by showing the consistency, the regularity with which this was applied throughout the throughout the 1800s, hopefully I could at least get scholars and courts to take it more seriously as a live option to recognize that in ignoring it, they're actually breaking with the prevailing approach of, of, of close to a century. And so, you know, certainly to the extent that you care, right, not just about text and structure, which which I think this is the best, which I think this this doctrine is the best application of, but to the extent that you do care about history and originalism and simply the, the, the notion that historical practice can help to flesh out the meaning of constitutional provisions, I think that, and I, my hope is, this, this paper provides new evidence that might get people to think about things in a way they, they hadn't before and to take seriously a potential objection that they might have otherwise just given short shrift to. Mm. Well, so, Michael, in, in closing, I mean, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on why this move to state constitutions as a means of limiting political gerrymandering took place, sort of where the hostility to the independent state legislative doctrine came from and sort of like, I mean, based on your description, it, it, it just doesn't seem like state legislatures could accomplish restrictions on political gerrymandering just as well, at least in the abstract as, as constitutional conventions or whatever, Right. So like, what's the deal? Like, why are why are people like up in arms about this? Why are people upset about this? So under the independent state legislature doctrine, even if a state legislature were to enact its own restrictions on political gerrymandering, it would be free to amend them or repeal them in a way that it couldn't with a with a state constitutional amendment. Now, Certainly, if Congress were to come in and were to adopt restrictions or prohibitions on political gerrymandering, which which it is free to under the elections clause, right? Again, Congress has Congress has power to make or alter rules 
governing congressional elections. So Congress can always step in, pass a federal law prohibiting political gerrymandering with regard to congressional elections. And again, state state legislatures would be would be bound by that. I think that a lot of people are appropriately <laughs> skeptical about the notion that that Congress would take such action, you know, at certainly at, at any time in the, in the near future, right? Congress is always subject to gridlock. Uh, it, 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 it's very hard to get you know, important legislation through Congress. So you, they don't really see federal a new federal law as a viable alternative because even a state statute could be overridden by the legislature. Right? They, they don't view that as providing the same level of protection that enforceable state constitutional amendments would. But at, at the end of the day, right, this simply reflects the fact that structurally the Constitution does entrust great responsibility over the electoral process to political entities, to like state legislatures, like Congress itself, and allowing courts to step in and enforce state constitutional restrictions, in my view, is going beyond the institutional choice decision expressly embodied in the elections clause and in the presidential electors clause. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Mike. This is a great paper, great conversation, really timely topic. And I'm glad to get this perspective on gerrymandering out there. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Some on rights and some on wrongs Prefer their own reflections The people's rights demand our song The right of free elections Law and order be the state With freedom and protection All stand by the ballot box For fair and free elections